0: Praising the Lord this morning to be with you. Man, praising the Lord that the death and the resurrection of Christ cleanses us of our sin. Amen? And the Bible says that we have been justified, we have been redeemed, but sadly, we have still have to deal with the sin until on this side of heaven. And so this morning, my hope is, is that you will see how God intends for the church to deal with sin. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We have been walking through this letter, 1 Corinthians, entitled it, Dear Church. It is a letter written to the Corinthians. And Paul has been addressing... behavior the problems and the beliefs of this church in order that he may lead them to become a healthy church and so we now come to a transition point where in the last four chapters Paul has been dealing with the quarreling and the division of the church uh, over pastors and things like that he now is going to transition now to begin dealing with different sins and different things going on one a very grave sin this morning and and there's a reason why paul did this by the way and and you'll understand it today and you'll see it more over the next few weeks the what may have seemed not as a big sin the quarreling and dividing over pastors and how they were ranking pastors and all of that and the factions when you compare that to the sin that you're about to see this morning you would probably think why didn't paul start with that this one because that's a bad sin Well, beloved, in order to deal with this sin and to deal with the other issues within the church, Paul had to first deal with the unity of the church. Because as you will see with this morning, if the church is not unified, the church cannot then correct the other issues. And so Paul had to deal with the unity and get the church unified first, that now, as we go from here to the very end of the book, the church is unified and the church begins to deal with these sins and these, these misunderstood beliefs and behaviors and correcting them. So this is extremely important. You're going you're gonna to see that. And so we're now going to transition over in chapter 5 where Paul is going to reveal to us this morning a practice within the church that is not really practiced anymore. And it is called the practice of church discipline. And I want to thoroughly cover this issue, okay? So we're going to spend three weeks dealing with chapter 5. I don't want to run over this. I don't want to just run through this. I want to walk through this slowly, kind of like a tour guide pointing you to the different aspects of this chapter so that we won't fall into what seems to be the sin of most churches. There are two things that happen when it comes to church discipline, okay? Either you abuse church discipline and it becomes a malpractice, or you you don't or you do no church discipline at all and you let sin run wild. And so that seems to be the two sins of the church in today's time. Either we we tend to abuse it or we don't practice it at all. And that's not what Paul tells us to do here. And so I want to spend some time over the next three weeks, looking at a church that disciplines, will be the title, a church that disciplines, and I want to answer three questions over the next three weeks. What is church discipline? Why do we practice church, or, or, or why do we practice church discipline? And then how do we practice church discipline? So today, I want to answer the first question. What is church discipline? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me here to... 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done these deeds would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this, and as though I were present in the name of the Lord Jesus when you were assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that... A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our, for Christ, our Passover has already been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous, or the swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with the so-called brother, if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. This is a very heavy text and so in order to to understand what is going on here in order for us to to, to really be able to do the tour guide and walk out and, and point to all the things you know we're going to have to get some context here this morning okay context is everything when you want to understand important truths I would say you understand any truth you need context with this so so what is the context that we find ourselves in this morning well there is a church like us a local body church faith family who have covenanted together to worship the lord and to to serve the lord together and so they meet like we do and they worship and they have all they have all the same things that you and i do okay but there is one within the church who is committing a very grave sin and if you'll notice that the that really the focus of the text is not really on the individual but on the church It's really interesting. Paul does point out this man's sin. Paul does tell you what to do with this man's sin. But Paul really spends the entire chapter dealing with the church and their toleration of the sin. Now, the sin that is being committed is a very grave sin. It's a very horrifying sin. And the church has tolerated the sin, if not enabled and even encouraged this sin. Paul says, here in verse one, "It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife." This is the context. You have a church member living in sin. The word "reported" means to be rumored to be have told to Paul. If you remember, we've seen this before. In chapter one, Paul told us that that it had been reported by Chloe's people about the divisions and the quarreling. So it's very likely that Chloe's people, all, <coughs> excuse me, have also told Paul about what's happening here. It's very likely that, that that this man has committed a sin, and there's a group of people within the church who have called this man out, and he has not repented. And there, when he did not repent, what happened was they went before the church, that the church, and they said in a deacon's meeting, or they said in a business meeting, or in a Sunday school class, they said, hey look, we got this guy, we love him, he's, we love him, he is our brother in faith, but he is living in open rebellion, in, in public, this public sin is a bad witness and all these things, and so it gets brought up into a deacon's meeting, or a business meeting, and the church decides to do nothing. They do nothing. And so they write to Paul. And they say, they, say, they say, Paul, we don't know what to do. And so Paul says, I have heard what is taking place. And even worse, I've heard your decision on how to handle this sin. What is the sin? It is the sin of sexual immorality. And it is the sin of sexual immorality to the highest degree. This man has a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Not his mother, but apparently his mother has passed, has died, and so now he has his father has remarried, and so now apparently the father had, and the father and stepmother have divorced, and the son is with the mother. It, you know, maybe they're not divorced, but there's an affair. The divorce is probably either going to happen or is in place. It is a very gross and terrible sin, beloved. One that Paul says not even the Gentiles. Say is okay, which is interesting when you consider that King Herod—not—not—not not, not Herod the Great, but the son Herod—remember John the Baptist? You see, John got his head cut off because he called out Herod for his sin, because Herod had had an affair with his brother's wife, which was also his half sister. And Paul says, "This is not even accepted among the Gentiles that a son would take the wife of his father." Beloved, this is a gross and immoral sin. But what is far more gross and what is far more horrifying is that there is a church, a local body, that has tolerated and allowed and said nothing to this individual. They have tolerated it. Why? Why? Well, oh, notice what Paul says. He says in verse 2, he says uh, here that that it is an issue of arrogance. Okay, he says, you become arrogant. He says in verse 6, you are boasting. In other words if you remember several chapters ago that the Corinthians had embraced worldly philosophy they had embraced this worldly thought and so what had happened was they they had thought that they had become wise remember that whole conversation there that back in chapters two and three you are you think you're wise and God is foolish but in reality God is wise and you are the fools and so here we see it they thought that they had found this great enlightenment through the world they taken the gospel of Christ they'd taken these worldly philosophy they put them together and they they came up with this idea that this type of sin is okay for whatever reason it may be. We'll get into that later throughout the chapter. But they were arrogant in saying that whatever goes, goes. Who cares, right? Let them do what they want to do. This sin should be tolerated. It's the way of the world. We're not like that. We're no longer in the dark ages. We're no longer back in those days where it was just man and woman or or marriage. And, and No, we, ha- we are more evolved. Right? Have you heard this kind of stuff? This is the arrogance below. They have allowed the false beliefs of philosophy to warp their view of the gospel and sanctification and how they are to live. And he says, you're arrogant. But not only that, they have a misguided view of love. Because notice what he says again in verse 2. He says, and you have not mourned. You have not grieved for this individual. In other words they said they thought well if we say something to him it'll be judgmental and it's not very loving. And Paul goes absolutely not it's the quite the opposite you're not loving him. You're not calling him. You're not admonishing him. You're, you're showing no love. But, but also notice something that's not mentioned in the text, but it's there. Okay. We, we got to recognize this, that when someone does sin, beloved, someone's going to get hurt. And so here we have a group of people who are, who are just allowing this, maybe for the act of love. We just want to love him. We don't want to be judgmental. And yet they are not loving the father nor the stepmother you see we have this problem in the church that beloved, out of the fact that we don't want to be judgmental and be and be seen as unloving and calling out someone's sin that in the meantime we're totally forgetting the fact that this individual's sin is harming other people and the very act of us ignoring and doing nothing, beloved, is showing no love to them as well. Not to mention that he also is pointing out, you are not mourning over this sin, meaning you, your love for God is even being called into question here. So you have this issue of arrogance and this misguided view of love this morning. So, so, so this is our context. The circumstances that's happening within this local body, very much like ours, a local church, is a toleration of sin. And this is where it leads to. Paul comes in and he says, here's what needs to happen. In verse 4 and 5, he says, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, when you gather together... This is what he means by the act of church discipline. It's not one person doing something. It is an assembly of the people. He says, I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. There in verse 13, but those who are outside God judges. But he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul is calling this church to gather together, and to remove this individual from the membership of the church. Now I'm going to explain all this because that sounds really bad. Matter of fact, matter of fact, go with me here. That right there, the removing of one from membership of the church because of unrepentant sin. That right there in today's culture is something that not even the Gentiles would approve of. In our culture today, we will approve of a man who acts in this way. But a church who would dare judge another individual's sin and remove them from the church, remove them from membership of the church? How dare they? not? Not us atheists would do such a thing because we're more loving than you Christians, right? That's where we are, beloved. That's where we are in our day. We are living in a day uh, where the practice of church discipline is seen as such an unloving and and barbaric practice that the atheists and the God-haters would not even consider doing this. What is church discipline? What does it mean? What what is it? Because our view of this is, is really much Star Wars. Our view of this is Jabba the Hutt. When when Luke comes before Jabba the Hutt and he's going to free Han Solo and Princess Leia, right? He stands before Jabba the Hutt and Jabba just laughs and he hits the button, you know, and he falls to his doom in the prison with the monster. That's our view, is that if there is someone in our church who, who has done something who's not as perfect or as good as us, we hit that button and we just enjoy their their demise. Beloved, that is not church discipline. In fact, I'm going to show you that in fact it is the very opposite of that so what is church discipline what is, what is what is paul calling us to do so four things that i want you to see this morning notice one number one it is a judgment look at verse three he says for for i on my part though absent in the body but present in the spirit have already judged him who was so, uh, who has so committed this as though i were president Present. so the apostle paul says i have judged this man now immediately you have a bad feeling in your stomach amen right? Because you, you don't like that word. To judge. You, you are not to judge one another. Matthew chapter 7 verse 1. Don't judge lest you be judged, right? You have, we have bought into this thing that there is no judging of one another. Who are you to judge me? That's not right. And so there is this there is this pit and there's this, there's this feeling in my stomach. Oh, brother Brian, I, I got to go home and take some medicine that you even brought that up. You, we are not going to grow as a church. This is not in the church growth manual, right? But let's be honest this morning. The word judge leaves a bad taste in our mouth. Why? Because we have been brainwashed into believing that to pass judgment on someone is a top three sin. We've been we've been we have again, the Gentiles won't even do it. The pagans won't do it. And so we believe that Matthew chapter 7, 1. By the way, did you know that Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged, has replaced John three sixteen today? As the most memorized and quoted verse in all of our culture? It's the most quoted verse in our culture. But Matthew 7, 1, judge not lest ye be judged, is not saying the same thing that Paul is saying here. Mark Devers says, whatever Jesus meant by not judging in Matthew 7, he didn't mean to rule out the kind of judging that is mandated in Matthew 18 or 1 Corinthians 5. He says, if you think about it, it's really not surprising that we as a church should be instructed to judge. After all, if we can say nothing, he says, if we cannot say how a Christian should not live, how could we ever say how a Christian should live? If I can't tell you what is wrong and and how you should not live, how could I ever not tell you how to live? So so we've got to think this through this morning. So the word judge means to separate or to, to, to make a determination. So spiritually meaning you have separated right from wrong. You have separated that which is holy from that which is unholy. You have separated that which is true from that which is false. Do you know that we've bought into this idea that we're not to make judgments, but yet we actually make judgments? There's two problems with this, beloved. Number one, first, you make judgments all the time. You do. So how many of you this past week or two weeks sat in front of the television with our new president, our new administration, and all the executive orders and all the things that are going on, and you said, how dare he? That is wrong. How dare he? Those are wrong policies and those are wrong executive order. That Why would he do this? Or why would he do that? I, I can't believe he would do such and that is wrong. Or the last administration, well, how did, what, what he just said was so mean or so cruel or his policies wrong. You, Whatever administration you want to go with, you made a judgment on what was right and wrong. What was helpful and unhelpful. Meaning that, beloved, we have bought into the idea that it's fine to make judgments out there, but not in here. Meaning that we have become hypocrites. Because Paul says in chapter, in verse 9 and 11, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world. Paul actually says you are more wrong to make a judgment when you watch the media and make a judgment on what they're doing out there than you are than in here. But secondly, the Bible exhorts us to make a judgment. The problem is not judging, beloved. The, the, the problem is not determining whether something is true or false, whether something's right or wrong. The problem is, is in how you judge. Look, look, look with me here, okay? Matthew chapter 7. I want you to hear this. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, notice that, you can't, a Context. You cannot remove one verse from the context. He says, he says, In the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to what? To take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's not about judging. It's about how you judge. The problem is is that the Pharisees were judging wrongly. Their method was wrong. They didn't care about themselves. But Paul is saying you deal with yourself first. That's why you had chapters 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 before you get to chapter 5. You deal with your own sin first. And when you have removed the speck from your eye, you can then help your brother Church discipline, beloved, is the practice of the church declaring that which is holy and which is unholy. And so in the case of Corinthians, it was for them to say to this man, brother, we love you, we care for you, but here's the problem. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is unholy and sinful against God. You've got to stop. You've got to stop what you're doing, beloved. You've got to stop doing this because it is not right. That's what this was. And so in our day-to-day, beloved, in our time, you and I have three things that you need to know that we must make judgments on. Number one, you must be able to make a judgment as a church on the message, whether the message is true or false. Is the preacher preaching a message that is true, or is he preaching a false gospel? We are, as a church, supposed to make these judgments. Because if we don't, beloved, we may be preaching a message that is wrong and misleading people. So we get to determine whether something is right or wrong, something is true or false, something is sinful or not sinful. We also get to declare whether a behavior is righteous or wrong. Again, it's not our opinion. It's what does the Word say. And so, and I'm going to get to this. So if somebody is doing something, we as a church must be ready and willing, must understand that we have a responsibility to say that, brother, you, you know, having that deal With your stepmother. Yeah, that's just wrong. It's wrong. Or how about this one? I, I know I know that the meeting was not good in the deacon's meeting, and so, brother, I, I know that you got your feelings hurt and you're mad and you're angry and you're vengeful, you, you, brother, but look, you can't do that. That's wrong. Or how about this one? You're about to leave your husband for another man. That's wrong. You, or, or hey, or, or, hey you're, you're meddling, you're lying and cheating and stealing from your, from your workplace. That's wrong. But we've been bought into this idea that you have no place to say that. We get to declare whether the message is true or false, whether the behavior is right or wrong, and we also get to declare that whether a brother or sister in the faith is is in good standing or not. We're going to get to Matthew eighteen, but Paul but, but Jesus himself tells us that if one is unrepentant of sin, the church has the responsibility to say to that brother and to that sister, they are not living by faith. Not whether they're a brother or sister in Christ, not whether they're saved or not, that's not your place. But to say that that individual is on a one way path to destruction it is a judgment it is a determining but then it's also a delivering over to Satan look at verse 4 and 5 that in the name of our Lord Jesus when you are assembled and I with you in spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus I have decided to deliver such one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be notice this saved in the day of the Lord Jesus you can't take that away this sounds very scary because who wants to deliver someone that they love and that they covenanted with over to Satan right hopefully no one that's not what that's not what this is. This is again, this is not job of the hut hitting the button, laughing as Luke Skywalker falls to his doom, right? That that's not what this is. The word deliver is a legal term. So you have to think of this in a legal sense. So, so it's one use in the courtroom. So how does the courtroom work? Okay. Well, to deliver means to give over. How does that take place in the courtroom? Well, there's a judge who has a gavel, who has the law behind him. He, he, he's got the, the law of the land, right? And so then there's this jury. Well, you have God as the judge. You have, you have the church as the jury. And so they determine that this person has committed a, a, a crime, a sin, that they have, they have broken the law. And so they come together and they make a ju- judgment right they make a judgment so and so is guilty by all accounts right well the judge doesn't look to the jury and say all right go outside and stone him no 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 that's not how this works instead when the, when when they say that he is guilty he is then delivered over to who the bailiff the bailiff is, the, is satan i'm sorry randy i'm just messing with you <laughs> if you might know randy being a bailiff He's delivered over to the consequences of his sin. Randy then takes the guy and then delivers him over to where he may be placed into prison. It may may be better that the warden is actually Satan here. Go with the warden, Randy. Randy said go with the warden. So the warden becomes Satan. And so we hand him over to the warden where the warden then fulfills the punishment that is due for this individual. And so this person is delivered over. So the church, there's this idea within church, this one, that we are punishing an individual. But that is not the case in the eyes of God. Instead, we are the jury that has made the judgment. And therefore, he is then what? He is then handed over. But what is it called, beloved, when you will not hand over the one who has committed the crime? You're uh, a, what is it, uh, aiding and abetting. You're hiding him in your in your room. I knew it. I, I've heard this before. You know where, where the cops are out there looking for the guy. And you're like, I don't know where he is, but but he's in your room. That's a crime, by the way. The church is not punishing the unrepentant sinner, beloved. That's not our job. That is the job of Satan. For what does First Peter five eight says? He says, "Our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour, that he may destroy." First Peter five eight. Again, verse 5, he says that he delivered one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, this is what it means. This unrepentant sinner is reaping the consequences of his sin. In other words, he is reaping the judgment of God. Romans chapter 1. Don't miss this. Let me read this to you. Romans chapter 1. He said, listen to what what God says, what Paul says. For this reason God gave them over, God delivered them over to, to their degrading passions. For women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way also men abandoned the natural function of uh, for women and burned in their uh, desire toward one another. With men committing indecent acts and then notice this, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, is that. The person who has been seen as being wrong and unrepentant is being delivered over that he may experience that which he wanted. That he may receive the consequences of his sin. So that he may hit rock bottom. That in the end his soul may be saved. You say that all the time. You've said that to me before. Many of you have. That in our passing conversations, many of you have said, so-and-so, I'm praying for them. So-and-so is doing these things. They're sinful. And, and man, they, they've just lost everything. And, and you know what, Brian? Maybe they needed to do that. Maybe they need to hit rock bottom. Why? So they can what? Find their way out. Paul is saying the same thing. That God is turning them over to the consequences. He's no longer protecting them. He's no longer, gonna, he's no longer holding back. The rotten fruit that they have sown in their life. And yet the church itself should not aid and abet the individual. In other words, what happens is when a man continues his sin and lust and pornography or adultery, it leads to divorce to a family that leaves him children who will never talk to him again maybe someone who has addictions and other things it leads to sickness it leads to it leads to bad health or maybe it's imprisonment for lying and cheating and stealing maybe it's financial ruin whatever the case is blah. too many times we want to enable and encourage and help individuals when God himself has already said turn them over to me but God, it's going to be hard. You're, you're going to hurt them. But turn them over to me. But God, we can do it better. Turn them over. Why, God? Why do I need to turn them over to you? So that their soul may be saved in the day of the Lord. Because, well, here's the thing. You think that by what you're doing now will help them today. We're not worried about today. The day that you and I need to be worried about is the day that we stand before Christ. And if, we have to, and if we have to go through some hardships and hit rock bottom, beloved, in order that I may see my sin and repent of my sin, that on that day I may be saved, then amen, praise the Lord, every day and twice on Sunday. And may God have mercy on a church who would ever tolerate sin and his will and his work in a person's life revelations 20, 20 I have this against you church that you tolerate the woman Jezebel oh beloved may we recognize that God is using these things to bring their salvation and many a times you and I are hindering that because we think that we can love them and deal with them better than God can But also notice verse 6 and 7. This is also a cleansing. He says your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed leaven or yeast spreads throughout the dough and this was always symbolic of sinful influence and that, that if a sinful person is not removed from the community of faith it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread throughout the community of faith this is the reason why, beloved I know this sounds so barbaric and we never really understood it but this is the reason why in the Old Testament law so much of their sin ended with the consequence of the punishment of death it ended with the consequence and the punishment of death why? that the sin would not spread to the rest of those in the community and so to put it in terms for us today, a bad apple ruins the bunch, which is proven time and time again in the Old Testament, proven time and time again in the New Testament, Corinthians being a great example. But I'm gonna sh- I can tell you right now, I can give you an example today. I can point to an individual. I can point to individuals, not in the church. I'm not going to do that. Individuals that prove this point. You say, How, what do you mean by that? I can point to men and women present day who are members of churches who have embraced sinful, sinful, sinful practices and beliefs. And their church has yet to act upon those things. And for that very reason, they have influenced many. I can point to individuals who have embraced homosexual, transgender, and abortion ideology in a different denomination With people calling for his church discipline. And the church refuses to discipline. And now that individual sits as president of the United States of America. Signing executive order after executive order and influencing a nation and a world in the ways of homosexuality, transgender, and abortion. And guess what? This has been happening with presidents for decades and politicians for decades. Who were members of churches and embraced the most ungodly views and have committed the most ungodly acts. And yet their churches stood up and did nothing while they themselves influenced an entire country in the ways that are anti-God. And yet we think that someone's sin in the local church has no effect over us. That as a church, beloved, is our job. And it is our responsibility as a church to stand up and fight against the sin that is in all of us. Would you fight against my sin? I don't ask this just to prove a point. I'm asking this, beloved. As a pastor this morning, I ask you, will you fight against my sin? Would you stand while I was Oppressing and I was cheating and lying and stealing against my wife, my precious wife, who, I, who, who you say to me that you love dearly, and I am just running around. Would you stand and fight against my sin? You call me your brother. You tell me that you love me. Would you fight for me then? Do you love this church? Now you would say, I love these people. I love the ones that are in front of, that are in front of me and behind me and to my side. I care for these people. Therefore, if there is something that threatens them, beloved, spiritually threatens them, physically threatens them, would you fight? Would you work to cleanse out the old leaven, to remove the bad apple, that you may protect that which you love? I need you to fight for me. I need you that when my sin, and who, who am I to say that my sin would never become so bad, that it would mislead my flock, that it would not hurt my wife, that it would not hurt my children. How arrogant of a man would I be to say that? But let me say this. I know that in this church, there are men and women in this church Who would fight against that in me. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I see that as a good thing. That I have men in this church. Brothers in this church. Who would work to clean out the leaven in me. And in this church. If I am the sinful one. Because they love me. And they love this church. You and I have been given this responsibility. To protect the faith family. There is no one on this earth that is more that is more dear to me. Beloved. There, 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 there is no group of people in all the earth that is more dear to me than the faith family. You, you are the dearest thing that I have. And it is my job and it is your job to protect one another. We're to protect the witness and the testimony of the church. Do you realize that we have ruined that? By allowing sin to run rampant in our church, we have we people have ha, ha, have rejected the Lord. They 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 have left churches. They have stopped coming because of the sin that we have allowed in the church. Because we've done nothing against it, we've allowed it. We have not protected the witness of the Lord. beloved, when sin runs rampant, when we say that we love an individual who's committing sin, yet those that he hurts are being are, are just suffering, and we, in the church, do nothing for them. Why would they ever turn to Christ? The holiness of God's people. Is that not a treasure? To be holy. To proclaim the glory of God within the local church. Are you willing to fight and protect it? Are you willing to call that which is sin. And which is wrong. That you may protect Christ's name and his glory here on earth. What about the gospel message? That I cleanse out the old leaven, that I may protect the gospel message, that men and women may hear the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for them, that Christ rose from the grave, that Christ loves them with all of His heart, that He took upon their sin on that cross, that they may receive His righteousness and be saved. Are you willing to protect that? Because that there determines whether people are going to go to heaven or hell. Or what about this one? Are you willing to protect the hope of restoration of the individual? Because Paul says we do this, that his soul may be saved in the end. I, I'm going to give you the how. I'm going to show you how this works, especially in just a few seconds here. But, but just hear me for a moment that, that what we do when it comes to church discipline, when we begin to confront sin, and it's, it's a long process. And it, again, it's not, it's not pushing that button and just watching. That's not how this works. But if we don't do this, beloved, we're not working for the one who's in sin. If we are not willing to call out their sin and work for them, there is no hope for their restoration. Are there men and women in your life that have ran away from the Lord and you were hoping for them to come back? Beloved, we're protecting that hope. That someone can sin, run into sin, wallow in sin like the prodigal son. And then one day get up and come back and be restored into the arms of the father. And God has given us a way to protect that hope. It is called church discipline. But there is a fourth one here. It is the expulsion. Notice again, 9 and 11. He says, I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean that immoral, uh, immoral people of this world who are uh, the covetous, the swindlers, with idolaters, or uh, for them you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he is an immoral person, covetous, an idolater, reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are on the outside, God judges. Paul now says that we are to disassociate, to not keep company. If you have not listened to anything, you must listen to this or you will not understand church discipline. Do not check out on this one, church. Notice the distinction. Church discipline is for the church member, not the non-member. A church has no authority over someone who is not a member. And so we have to be very careful not to be overzealous that we become, but we are wrong in, in this practice, like the Pharisees were, to go outside the bounds of Scripture. Paul is referring to the rights and the privileges of faith family, those things shared by Christians, not non-Christians. This is where church membership is so important. I'm going to give you some examples in a minute, but just notice what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying here have nothing to do with the person. Don't. You're not, again, you're not hitting the button, never see them again. That's not what this is. Paul is not saying kick the individual out of church where he can't come back. I'm going to show this to you. Paul is not saying that. How do I know? Look what he says. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not mean at all you know, immoral people of this world or with covetous or swindlers and all that but the one in the church. So Paul says you will associate with those outside the church, right? You have to. You have to associate with the swindlers and the revilers and the idolaters. You have to associate with the people who are doing these other things out there. Why? That you may share the gospel with them, that they may repent of their sin and come to Christ. So let's think this through what he's saying. If a person is not a member of the church, then, then then he joins that group that Paul says that you are associating with. If they're not a member, you go out there into the world and you tell them about Jesus, you love on them and share the gospel. And so then he says, but but notice in other words, church discipline if it's done correctly is not a complete expulsion. It's not a kicking someone out of the church, never to come back into the church. Instead, it's a change in relationship. In other words, it's an expulsion from Christian privileges. In other words, when you become a member of the church, you have privileges that those outside the church do not have. Taking the Lord's Supper. Voting. Ministering, teaching Sunday school, serving in the local church. You have intimate relationship with one another. You have fellowship with one another that you have with no one else. That's the reason why that we are to be the closest individuals with one another than any other relationship in the world. That, that there is a bond between you and me that I can find nowhere else. The unrepentant sinner is no longer to be treated as a fellow brother in the faith. Therefore, he is no longer to take the Lord's Supper. He's no longer to be allowed to vote. He's no longer to minister. He's no longer to have the same intimate relationship where we just act like everything's okay and nothing is wrong. You do that with the lost people. Instead, this person is to be treated as a lost person where you share the gospel. And so, at FBC, let me ask you a question. Where do we want lost people to come? Every Sunday. To church. church. Where do we want them before the worship gatherers to meet in worship in Sunday school? And where do we want them on Wednesday nights but in prayer meeting? And where do we want them on Sunday nights but in a class? And where do we want them, by the way? Monday through Saturday. Somewhere in your influence where you are pouring the gospel into them. In other words, what Paul is saying here is is that it's not an expulsion as they are never to be allowed in the church. It's a change in, in relationship. They are expelled from the Lord's table, yes. But they are not expelled from you going and buying them lunch and then sitting down and saying, Brother, I love you. Let me share the gospel with you. This is not a complete separation but a change in relationship and privileges. Why? That the gospel may become the main focus that you may tell them of Jesus Christ who died for them, gave his life that they may repent of their sins and like the prodigal son be brought back. This idea, beloved, that this excommunication is that we are to totally remove them and never to see them again is a lie. It is a change. And there are times where there is a Full excommunication, but that is extreme. But but this issue of church discipline is not an issue that I have nothing to do with you. But I recognize that I I recognize what you need, and what you need is salvation. Very quickly, beloved, I ask you this one question: What do these characteristics sound like? Think about what we just looked at. There is a determination. There's a you've been you, something is revealed to be sinful or not. There's a hindrance to sin that we we stop the furtherance of sin and the destruction of their soul. We stop the spread of sin within the community. There's also this, this revelation that, that 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 expels the sin away. What does that sound like? Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. I want you to read listen to this. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. What does light do? Light reveals that which is in darkness. It reveals that. It determines that which is is hidden to show what is unholy. Light removes darkness. It expels darkness. What does salt do? But salt, when something is rotting, salt is used to stop the furthering of of rot that you may save the whole thing. it's, It's to stop the spread of the rot. Beloved, church discipline... Church discipline is the exposing and expelling of sin. And beloved, I understand the difficulty and the hardship of this with you this morning. I promise you that I do. But it is done. Notice what Jesus says here. It is done, as he says in verse 17, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This includes the unrepentant sinner. This included the father. And this even included the stepmother. Paul wanted this church to act in such a way that they would see the good works of Christ that they may glorify God in heaven. Because all three individuals who were caught up in this sin were in need of the influence of salt and light in their their life. To feel the grace of God that that they may be restored from the heartache of sin. And the only place they're going to get this, beloved, is in here they're not going to get it out there the only place that you're going to find salt and light is here within the church and so FBC I, I get that this is hard stuff but hear me this morning we are not ready for this this is not something that we as a church will, will do anytime soon, even though it is within our church bylaws. But it's not something that you and I are ready to, to act out tomorrow. But it is something that you and I must begin to pray about and must begin to seek that we may do right. That we may be the salt and the light of the world and not ignore the responsibility that's been placed upon the church. And so this morning, you asked the question, what must I do then, Brian? What, what do you want me to do then? I'm glad you asked it, so, so hear me this morning. Repent. If FBC has failed in the past to deal with unrepentant sin within the church, we must repent. And we must turn from that practice and begin to call upon God to help us by His grace. We must pray and begin Praying that God would prepare us and sanctify us. that To deal with the speck, we got to deal with specs in our own. we got to deal with our own lives first. That we can then begin to deal, help our brothers and sisters. And then I would say this. And we're going to focus on this in the coming weeks. Build, build, build relationships. You cannot do this, beloved. If you don't love one another. And have a good relationship with one another. You must grow in your understanding of healthy church. You must seek... Restoration always. And then I would say this. If you were living in sin and you have been confronted by a brother or a sister in faith. They came to you and they said, brother, sister, we, we love you. I love you, but you are, what you are doing is sinful and wrong. And you spurn them. And you turn them away and you in your anger cast them out for how dare they hear me this morning beloved they were loving you they were loving you and you need to repent you need to repent and go to them and let them know that you love them and let them know that they were working for your good Because that's what this is. You are working for me. And I am working for you. And we are all working for the name and the glory of Christ. Let's pray.